Hello, I'm Henrik Nordmark, and welcome to the second episode of the One, Two, Three Profusion, <laughs> Profusion Data, Data Podcast. Podcast. I think we nailed it that time. <laughs> okay, uh, welcome, David, or hello, David. Um, Greetings. How's it going? Salutations. Me, I'm doing really well. Nice and steamy here in Massachusetts. How about yourself? Yeah, it's uh, 27 degrees Celsius out here in London, which is what do definitely you do to a lot keep warmer. Cool? That is not uh, so warm. 27 the... is. <laughs> I try to box. keep the, the curtains closed in the early morning so that it doesn't become like a greenhouse. Oh, and yeah. that seems to help a little bit. But the kitchen just becomes unbearable. Mm. There are no curtains there. I love the kitchen. Open the freezer, open the fridge, got all the nice. Cool steam. <laughs> Not the most energy efficient thing, but yes, yeah, I, I definitely point. sympathize with that. Uh, at one point, I actually put a salmon, like a frozen salmon on my face just to cool down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, that to warm was... up the salmon. <laughs> Two birds with one stone right there. Exactly. <laughs> so um, I guess on this episode, we're interviewing Darren Robertson, uh, who works in the charity sector. I hope so. Hi, I'm Darren Robertson. I'm the lead digital analyst at Save the Children and uh, run the data function for Primary Leap Limited. And I guess it'll be interesting to see how that's maybe a little bit different from some of the data science work we've seen in uh, the private sector and see some of the nuances there. Compare and contrast. We're going to compare and contrast. Indeed. So we spoke to Darren in mid-July. And so without further ado, let's speak to Darren. Roll tape. All right. Today, David and I are with Darren at Robertson. Uh, welcome to the show, Darren. Yeah, pleased to meet you, Darren. Hi, David. Hi, Henrik. How are you both? Uh, hi, Darren. So what have you been up to this week? It's been a good week. Um, probably annoying my neighbors. Got a drum kit, so spent a bit of time oh, doing great. that. Um, Paradiddles. Paradiddles, absolutely, right, nice. um, and annoying those neighbours. So yeah, it's been, it's been good. I'm sure they, I'm sure they really appreciate your rhythm and funkiness. I mean, luckily, it is an electric drum kit, right? So it can be good sometimes when I put the headphones on. But let's face it, who wants to play with headphones on? I wouldn't. That's awesome. How about yourselves? I'm really enjoying this lovely hot weather. Uh, my wife and I just bought tons of. Uh, like prawns and swordfish and South African boarwars fight and stuff. each other. Uh, yeah, <laughs> they can fight each other. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to having that barbecue tomorrow. Enjoy it. Yeah. Think I might be coming to your house then. You should. You should. Uh, I'm in North yeah, London. I'd invite so. you over here, but it's a bit of a swim. So it's it's nice and hot here in Massachusetts. <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's probably even hotter than in London, but we can we can judge that later. Um, so shall we uh, introduce uh, Darren and, and ask him a little bit about his background? Um, interesting thing about Darren, uh, we looked up your LinkedIn, sorry for the stalking. Uh, you work in CRM. Was that your childhood dream? And you don't have a degree, which is not something you see every day. How did you get where you are and what the heck is CRM? And where are you? Yeah, okay. So um, did I work? Was that kind of my first choice in, in life? No, actually, uh, I wanted to be an archaeologist. I was a big fan of Indiana Jones. Um, but then, like, you know, kind of found out that life as an archaeologist is nothing like Indiana Jones. Uh, but so that kind of scuppered that quite quickly. Um, so, yeah, uh, 
I have had a bit of a strange way into where I am now. Um, I wouldn't change it, though. I really enjoy what I do. So, yeah, I work for Save the Children, uh, as you said, and I work for myself as well. I have my own business, Primary Leap. Um, and I work within the data function over at Save the Children. So I look after some of the data to do with our CRM platform and data to do with our more of our digital analytics as well. Let's stop you right here. What is CRM? Yeah, okay. Let's get a little definition early on for the newbies. Customer relationship management is a really important part of what we do uh, at an organization, at any organization. Um, all those data points that we collect about people, it's about really understanding how we can use that and leverage that to, to make amazing experiences for all of our customers. Okay, well, we'll, we'll come to that a bit, back to that a bit more. So uh, tell us a little more about your career path and, and how you found your way to, to save the children um, and with with uh, yeah, how did you make it there? What where were you before that? How how does one get a foot toehold on that uh, ladder with an HNF degree? David, you said that Darren has an HNF degree. What did you mean by that? Yeah, well, my wife was telling me that there's this businessman going around in the Netherlands in the healthcare industry, always doing interviews, and it would it would he would they would ask him what his uh, credential was, and he'd write oh HNF HNF degree. HNF degree, and then one time someone says, "Hey, wait, what 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 institution is this? What where, what kind of degree has? Oh, high school not finished." Right. Sorry, that was, you were no supposed to laugh, was... but it didn't. It didn't. Uh, it didn't work. That was a joke. It was a joke. Right. <laughs> Sorry, it was meant to be a joke. <laughs> but it, you know, they don't all land, so we can take that out if you like. So yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I started off really. Um, Teaching myself, I, I worked for a long time in the photography industry um, as, as a young adult. Um, that industry kind of went belly up uh, f for, for myself. And I found myself having to kind of like try and sell photography online. And that kind of just drove me into web analytics. Um, and that's when my career really started. Like I just, I got the bug. Um, mm. And I think, I think, you know, Analytics can be that sort of thing where you just catch the bug and it's just, it changes you. And, and that was it for me. Um, once I had started that, it's all I could think about was how can I use data to improve user journeys? How can I provide insight to organizations and, and improve the things that we do? Uh, so from there, uh, I basically started to teach myself about analytics and I've been self-taught pretty much all the way through. And I think that's kind of really important. So that's super uh, fascinating. And uh, I certainly have experienced myself kind of like the joy of analytics and uh, kind of the, the actual creativity in something that I think for a lot of people might sound incredibly dry and boring. It's just like, oh, you crunch numbers, huh? <laughs> well, <laughs> I feel sorry for you. But, but there is something genuinely imaginative and uh, quasi-artistic in, in what we do. Uh, could you maybe speak about that? Yeah, of course. Um, for me, it's all about patterns. I, I kind of, I'm a musician, right? I, I play the drum kit. I, I play a bit of piano as well. And I like looking for patterns and things. Um, I also like understanding the psychological aspect behind stuff as well. And I think, I think that's what drives me. I just, I, f I find it's just so exciting being able to help a business and also seeing the joy on other people's faces in in the organizations that i've worked for when you can bring real insight and make a real difference to an organization and let's face it data drives 
businesses these days. It makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, would you would you say that that if for someone just just to get double back on the CRM thing, customer relations management, would you say that CRM is it mostly about um, managing the databases of customers, um, or is it more about doing data analytical data analytic work, data science work, uh, you know, analysis of 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 what drives people along the customer journey to the different p- paths in the funnel. It's a really great question, David. Um, it's, it's a bit of both, really, to be honest. You know, it, it depends who, who in your organization is using it. Obviously, you know, a really good CRM platform's got to service a front front end team, you know, that's looking after from a customer service point of view. But, you know, really under the hood where, where I live, I mean, it's all about deriving insight and, and finding out what, what do we know about people? How can we use that information to provide our supporters, our customers uh, with amazing user journeys and experiences? Well, maybe like from that, we can think about um, user journeys, marketing, data science at the place you work, Save the Children, a, a fairly well-established charitable benevolent organization and and you've worked for them for for several several years what do you think makes data science and marketing and and CRM different or the same for nonprofits versus for-profit you know for, versus businesses and i have some ideas myself and i'm curious what you thought yeah that's thanks thanks for asking that david um i think you know realistically the not-for-profit sector I mean, it's hard for them, right? It's hard for us. Data science is something that is not easy. Uh, you know, the cost of a data scientist, the the skill sets are, are difficult. It's not like working in a large commercial operation where, um, you know, the funds for that are generally kind of just picked up on quite quite easy. And it's a kind of almost right. a no-brainer to have those skills. But And I know that among donors, there's research suggesting people are averse to so-called uh, fundraising expense ratios and and over so-called overhead, perhaps incorrectly averse to those things. So there's maybe a reluctant to invest in those types of things in in philanthropic organizations. Uh, do you think there tends to be a, a culture of not being as quantitatively minded in a in a not for profit relative to a business? Do people who get into it say, "Oh yeah, all this data stuff that's not for me. I didn't do stats." I'd say, you know, there are a lot of charities out there that are not embracing data in necessarily in the way that they could. And, you know, I think that's a lack of skill set for some of the smaller organisations or a lack of understanding for those smaller organisations. Obviously, the larger the organisation, the more important um, that data function becomes. And, you know, you'll see across a lot of organisations, larger charity organisations, that they have those data functions within the organisation. I think that's, you know, important to remember as well. But... You also got to you got to understand that if we look technologically, charities are behind the curve compared to to those commercial organisations. Mm. One thing that I also noticed because Provision has done a bit of work with some charities is that sometimes the platforms that are designed for uh, the commercial world are kind of uh, given at a discount or for free, even sometimes to charities. But sometimes they're not really like tailored made to the context of, of a charity or not for profit have you found found that challenging to try to adapt things that weren't designed for you effectively um that's just a really interesting question eric uh 
I'm actually going to say sometimes I feel the other way around. Uh, sometimes uh, as a future, you know, Save the Children is not the only charity that I've ever worked for. Um, and sometimes I find that the charity specific products actually sometimes hinder us mm. to be able to do the things that we really want to do because they're more suited to the big commercial platforms that, that you see out there, you know, your Salesforce, your Microsoft Dynamics. Um, so, you know, yeah, there, there are there are some things that are available inside of a charity CRM system that, you know, you might say is a benefit. But in real, reality, I don't think there's much you can't achieve in a modern top line kind of CRM platform like Salesforce or, or Dynamics, right? Hi, Henrik. Hi, David. Uh, can I just ask you a question? Uh, Emperor's wearing no clothes here. What is, quote, Salesforce? Yeah, so Salesforce is a CRM tool, probably the leading CRM tool out in the market. And to put it simply, it is a database of customers, but it has a very lovely GUI interface that makes it very easy for a company to keep track of its customers keep track of conversations, mm-hmm. know when was the last time someone has been contacted, uh, if one of the sales representatives goes mm-hmm. on annual leave for you know two weeks, uh, somebody else can pick it up and say, it's like, oh, okay, this person was actually contacted three days ago, and the last thing they spoke about was this new product that we're trying to sell. And so nothing kind of gets lost between the cracks. Um, so that's like very it? useful. Do you tool. like it? This is unpaid promotion right here. Do you like uh, <laughs> Salesforce? Um, I don't actively use Salesforce in my personal day-to-day life. Uh, I know some of my colleagues at Profusion definitely mm. do. Uh, I have occasionally entered some information into Salesforce for the benefit of my of my colleagues, uh, but I, I don't really have an opinion myself. All right, hot take. Uh, so, so I guess you're saying that. Uh, some of these platforms, like I think Razor's Edge, is a very popular uh, CRM system in the uh, uh, charity space. So, so that you don't think has any special features that make it really stand out compared to mm-hmm. just going for a Salesforce license, or or, or do you think it's about the same? Well, I, I, I think there are, but I think you know, with modern platforms, you have that ability to develop on top of them. And I think the ability to develop on top of those modern systems um, is not that complicated in this day and age. So the flexibility is really helpful. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. So I mean, what we're talking about, these are different tools, because I'm not super familiar with it, but I assume these are database tools uh, for working throughout the company, allowing people to enter new or to bring together things coming in from email and other other platforms, bring together database of donors, potential donors, warm list donors in the charity context, um, and then ways of reaching them. I'm, I'm actually not sure what a CRM platform looks like. Can you give sort of like, what are the key things that make it a CRM platform and not just a database? I guess, you know, the, 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 the most simplest way to to explain it is, you know, it's, it's a lot of different data points of, around different things that people do. There's different interactions that a customer supporter uh, may do. So, you, you know, thinking about like action tables, so all the actions that people have taken or the financial table to kind of pull together all of that or pipeline information around, you know, where a supporter may be in a particular uh, stage of their life cycle mm-hmm. for for like philanthropy, for example. I okay. mean, that's a really great example. 
So next, I wanted to ask you about uh, self-service analytics, uh, whether you think that works well or not, and also, you know, if it sometimes does not work well, what are maybe some of the reasons that you've seen that um, sort of cause self-service analytics to fail within an organization? And self-service analytics, let's let's give a definition of that for the casual listener. And I'm going to give my definition as someone who's not versed in this, so you can correct me. I think that's better. I think analytics are driving insights from, from data about your customers and other things to make business decisions or to understand it better, to aid business or philanthropic or marketing decisions. Self-service analytics would be things like what are often called dashboards or business intelligence tools that allow people who are not the data scientist, not the data analyst, to look things up quickly, do certain types of analysis, and make decisions. Is that a correct-ish definition? I think that's a really great definition, David, for like, you know, um, for a non-technical person. I think that's that's pretty much spot on. Um, And going back to what you were saying, Henrik, I think self-service analytics is really important. Uh, I think it's even more so important inside of the charity sector, Um, you know, Analysts are, are few and far between in, in, in those organizations. And those analysts, data people, they really need to focus their time on generating really deep insights for the organization. Um, and I suppose the problem that you know a lot of charities face are that their analysts are often you know spending their time writing reports instead of being able to do that 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 deep analysis. So you know, self-service is, is a really important thing to deliver inside of an organization. And it's about giving a really comfortable space that non-technical people can utilize to be able to actually, you know, build some of that information. Not the most complex of information, but, you know, good information that they can use to drive intelligent decisions for themselves. But you said, you, you mentioned uh, in an earlier conversation that there have been some challenges there. What sort of challenges do you have and if you were the czar of a place like Save the Children, how would you solve those? Yeah, I, I think, you know, within the charity sector, data literacy is, is definitely a key thing that, that has to be dealt with. You know, fundraisers are, are, are not data necessarily super data focused um, in that way that, you know, maybe the analysts are. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of complexity in some of the tools that we use. So making sure that that is understood is let's, really important. Let's give a specific thing. Maybe I can put you on the spot. Maybe I can't. Data literacy, understanding data, under, really understanding statistics, I think, is also a lot what we mean. What's an example of something that people who are not data literate get wrong all the time that could be even a quick, you know, or maybe that could be explained to them, not necessarily in this podcast, but in a, in a short uh, yeah. little se- session? Really good question, David. Uh, I think there's a lot of different aspects of problems with data literacy from just understanding metrics and dimensions anyway. But, you know, just understanding averages is is a really key thing. Um, You know, the mean, the mode, you know, like the the median median and understanding that and what those differences are is something not everybody knows. And why the median, the mean will often be a lot higher than the median because of these big you know, these big, whatever, out, outlying whales, et cetera, of, of let's say, Absolutely. donations. So in a charity like Save the Children, do they, how willing are they? I mean, in, in some sense, they're working to help save the children as an organization, but in another sense, they're really helping work to, well, save the children and save the world. But how willing do you think that they are to cooperate with other charities in this space? And do you see room for things like sharing of approaches and data with other charities in this space? Really, really, really great question. Um, 
Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of cooperation on frontline services, right? You know, charities generally do tend to work together in that space. Um, obviously, Save the Children's a movement. It's a movement of, you know, lots of Save the Children's uh, across the world. Um, and, yeah, we, we do work together uh, to, to share insights and understanding and methodologies. But I think you're right. There There isn't enough community necessarily around data folk sharing how things are done with other technical folk. And maybe that's something that we, you know, we all need to look into. I think there might be more room for that than in the commercial sector. That might be one of the differences was, was, was what I was thinking. I think Possibly. so. I think that. I'm kind of wondering if you've ever come across uh, Datakind. Uh, I know they, I think they're a charity in their own right that really tried to do data for good, I think is the, the phrase. And um, have you, had a chance to cooperate with them in any way or, or anything like that? Well, that's a good question, um, Henrik. Actually, you know, we were talking about DataKind this morning in the office. Um, I actually know Jake Poraway, who's one of the founders of DataKind, um, and I've been lucky enough to spend a bit of time with him uh, over the years. Um, they're a great organisation. Actually, what they do is fundamental to the charity sector. Um, and we need more more people like that helping you know, organizations to really drive change and to be able to do some of the more complex stuff that maybe those skill sets that our charities have aren't capable of doing. That's great. Um, so maybe moving on to uh, some of the actual ways that you're using your data, uh, I, I would imagine that perhaps one of the things that you would do in the same way that a business do, does is some kind of segmentation, not segmentation of customers, but the segmentation of donors. Um, is is am I imagining that, or is that a real thing that you do? Uh, and if so, what what is that like? Yeah, I mean, we let's face it, you know, we are like many other businesses. The, the sort of things that you do in a business are very similar to the sort of things that we do in a charity. So, you know, supporter segmentation is definitely something that we do. Um, it's really important for us. There are lots of different facets to people, and being able to group that together mm. so that we can understand those people and deliver them you know really intelligent journeys or experiences is, is crucial do you tailor messages to different segments and also how do you test that I'm, I'm curious to hear more and i think the listeners would be curious to hear more about how you do testing of 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 different messaging and and, and marketing approaches yeah absolutely so you know, from a website perspective, we've got A-B testing tools, um, so, so we could do some of that. Um, mm-hmm. We're just about to bring segmentation data into our CRMs, which will allow us to do, into our um, website even, sorry, uh, which will allow us to do some very clever stuff and testing there. Uh, and yes, you know, from like your email and, and, and messaging perspective, whether that be offline, you know, mail packs or from you know, your, your email, yeah, we're, we're doing testing. And some of that's going to be around geographical testing or doing sample sizes of testing and kind of seeing how that works. And what, what do you mean sample messaging. sizes of testing? So, so just, just to maybe to explain some of the other things that, that were touched on in, in the, in the previous. So geographical testing, I imagine that's by zip or postal code and, and, and or zip code in us. And um, we can, then it's we don't have to track by cookies because we can see what sort of responses do we get in different postcodes. Um, you mentioned A-B testing, which is basically where you're looking at only two, but of course we could also have multiple trials and, and iterate Absolutely. among those. 
presentations of the website and see or of other things and see which performs better. Uh, and then you mentioned something about, I believe you said sample size testing. And I'm not exactly sure what you meant by that. Yeah. So we'll, we'll maybe type, create an email, uh, a couple of versions of an email, and we'll send it out to a small sampling of, of people across our database. We'll see what the reaction to that is. Um, and then we'll decide then, you know, which one is the best one for us to actually send to, you know, a greater amount of our supporter base. So not risking sending a big, large send mm. to a lot of people um, right. and seeing what the response rate is, but doing that in small controlled instances to really understand. But there's a huge for us. space of, me- I just want to follow up on that. There's a huge space of messages you could explore though, right? So how do I, do you just say, okay, these two, we all agreed were the best ones, or do you do something where you're trying different messages? And if that one wins, then, you know, this sort of a sort of round robin tournament, I guess, technically that would be called adaptive design or a form of sampling called Thompson's or exploration sampling. How does, how does it actually happen? And on the street yeah so you know with some of our tools it'll be looking at the response rate the you know so the open rate how how well has it performed in terms of uh, soliciting the action that we're trying to get the person to do uh, whether that be making a donation signing a petition so we'll kind of look at those and you know the overall winner uh will go forward but how do you choose which messages to test you know how big a set of messages to test and which ones yeah so we generally build a testing plan so we spend time to create you know a plan of what we want to be able to test over a period of time for us that's that's the best way to do it there are as you rightly said there are so many things we could test and if we try to test everything then you know we wouldn't have time to to do our, our day jobs unfortunately so we we have a person who specializes with us to help build a testing model of what we should be testing so I'm curious, um, going circling back to this customer segmentation and uh, presumably the fact that you're tailoring different messages to different uh, supporter segments, do you mainly look at uh, behavioral data or do you also include some attitudinal data or do you do a mix of both? Uh, and just to clarify for our audience, uh, behavioral data typically is data that you collect about you know what people are clicking on uh, what emails they're opening whether they go into a charity shop uh, whether they make a donation uh, versus mm-hmm. attitudes which are typically measured using surveys and you ask explicit questions like um, I know do you love hedgehogs or you know whatever it is you want to know about them um, so, so do you use both or one or yeah, we, we we use a little bit of both, to be quite honest. Um, you know, there's a lot of behavioural data that we've captured. So, you know, we know particularly what type of content maybe that they've, you know, opened recently. So we kind of have, and it's something that we're still continuously working on, it's like understanding the theme of the content that we're sending so that we can you know, use that in our analysis and part of our segmentation. Um, and yeah, we have attitudinal data as well that we pick up from asking specific sets of supporters how they feel about things let's let's color this a little bit so what can you tell us about a hypothetical sort of just to give us a picture of it hypothetical profile of one particular segment of potential donors and how would you know that they're in that segment and how would you target them what particular messages might you give to appeal to that to that particular segment does anything sort of spring to mind there as particularly juicy yeah okay um Let's have a think. So, you know, uh, there's going to be a group of supporters that are 
time poor. Um, they're going to be the sorts of people that, you know, they support us. They understand what we do. Um, they just want to quickly make an action and they, they want to get on with it. You know, that's what they want. And so we may treat them very differently. Um, we may, they could be a group of people that are less likely to take a financial action, but very likely to take a non-financial action. So, you know, why would we send them lots of communications about giving us a donation if we know that that's not really what they want to do? They want to make that soft action, whether that be, I don't know, sending a letter to their MP or signing a petition. And it's about understanding those kind of things about our, our supporters. That would be the other group, the time-rich group and the money-poor group, I guess you could say. Yeah, you could look at it that way, yes. Okay, do, do you ever, what do you think about communicating the effectiveness of your interventions? Like, do you, do, you, do you ever try to communicate, okay, we're working in these countries and we're having these uh, measurable outcomes that are costing only a few pounds per, you know, well, not per life save, but per sort of day of quality of life added or per vaccine or a few thousand pounds per life saved uh, or per day or year of education. Does that does that messaging work? Is that something that you've explored at all? So, yes and no. So, you know, as a standard part of a, a user's email journey, we quite often will update users with information about how uh, particular campaigns or, or are going, um, or appeals, you might call them an appeal. Uh, so, you know, there is that onward journey but I, I think you're right i think there is um a greater need for deeper and richer understanding it's actually something that we're currently looking at mm. i mean that's something that makes charity a little bit difficult more different sorry a little bit different than other spheres i don't actually eat the product i just believe that someone else is eating the product and benefiting from it so i think maybe at this point it would be nice to, to widen a bit widen our scope a bit and um talk about some other things that you're involved in so for instance you're involved in in this other project, Primary Leap. Do you want to tell us a bit more about uh, Primary Leap? Yeah, so uh, Primary Leap is an education company. Um, we are uh, a company that provides uh, educational resources for primary school children here in the UK, but we have uh, customers across the world. Um, and we're focused on looking at how we can use technology to deliver exceptional um, educational journeys for children to be able to work you know, and use that kind of technology from home, as well as helping schools to leverage the ability to have a vast array of resources at the touch of their fingertips. So this is a for-profit or a non-profit, not-for-profit company, primarily? This is uh, a for-profit company. Okay, good. But with a, with a, some sort of a social mission or social involvement, clearly. What are you doing differently than other companies are doing? Because you're not the only one in this. I mean, I'm going to I'm going to label this as it seems like a sort of uh, online learning, digital learning platform and set of tools. What are you doing differently? What's your unique selling point? So for, for us, it's all about exceptional content and exceptional journeys. Um, but, you know, there are there are a few other players in, in the industry, particularly in the UK industry. Um, obviously, the further afield we go, the the bigger the amount of players there are in the field. But here in the UK, it's quite a small group of us. Um, and it's yes, yeah, just about building um, and giving children the ability to learn um, and making sure that we help parents to really understand the strengths and weaknesses of their child so they can help focus uh, on building, you know, those core skills for those children. Have you found any uh, 
techniques that are you know particularly helpful in in making that more viable uh, i mean i know in the past obviously educators um have been much more kind of hands on and like trying to uh figure out okay this child needs this kind of help and and this child needs this other kind of help but i i know that there's a lot of efforts from you know companies like Khan Academy and many others to try to really tailor the education so that it's just the right content at just the right pace at just the right time to kind of deliver that is that something that you're interested in or involved in at all or or am I off the mark here? No, no, I, th- I, think, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think it's about understanding you know, what should be learned and what order, making sure that, you know, it's available for the child at the right time. You know, 30 kids to a class, that's a lot of students. And, you know, not everybody is going to be at the same level. Um, we want to make sure that all children have an opportunity to learn at the pace that suits them. I think that's, that's that's a key thing, right? Yeah, that's huge. That's huge because probably half. I mean, half the time you're spending in 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 classes and lectures, you're you're either way ahead of it, way behind it, zoned out. I, I think most of our lots of our youth is being wasted in, in the in these ways, or has been wasted in these ways. Right? I'm doodling in my notebook while they're going over something I'm either completely clueless about because they're way ahead, or this is your baby stuff. Um, I think that's that's uh, really good what you can do and what you're trying to do with technology. Um and I think technology and data science can be used in a lot of different ways and you've you've alluded to some of them before. I mean, I think, you know, Indiana Jones, uh the archaeologist, he used a certain set of tools uh to deal with with disasters and to help us to help free a lot of people from when they were in that temple of doom, et cetera, et cetera. And today I think we would use Another set of tools to help people, namely data science tools to help people with emergencies uh, in frontline services. Do you have some examples of how data science or any really exciting ways that you think data science can be used in these important mission work and, and in disasters and emergencies, bringing together your dreams of youth with your current expertise and career? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know... I have a lot of personal feelings uh, about this. Um, you know, I'm horrified to see the dis- natural disasters that we see on the TV absolutely every day. You know, only if we look at the news today, there's been, you know, big floods in, in, in Europe. Um, and how do we react to these? How, you know, can, can the, the business community and, and the great data scientists that we have out there, how can they help us to understand where the need is? I think, you know, when you've got a natural disaster, there are a lot of fires to fight. Um, But in which order do you need to fight those fires? And I think data science um, and data scientists in particular have a really big place to play within helping helping that, really. Do you have some any particular examples of way that data and data science has been used in or could be used in frontline services or emergency situation? So, you know, I think... Let's say you've, you've you've got you've got a natural disaster. So a hurricane has happened. Um, where where can we? Where is the need the greatest? Where of those people? You know, is that maybe mining messaging in, in social channels? Where is the need the greatest? How can we use data science to really understand where we need to be, not necessarily where we think we need to be? And I think that's what's really important: is being able to make sure that those 
those things that people really need can be delivered swiftly and efficiently to the places they need to go. Going slightly away from the data sciences, more towards some of the social sciences, and particularly to behavioral economics, I was curious if these things around like nudge theory, uh, you know, presenting information a certain way versus another way is something that you had come across in your work, either, you know, at Save the Children or at Primary Leap or, or, or anywhere else. Oh, that's such a horrible word for it, Henrik. <laughs> I'm cringing at, at you calling it nudge theory. <laughs> what would you call it as an economist? I mean, they, nudge was a word used in a book by uh, one of the leading proponents of this, but the idea is... Kahneman, um, right? Yeah, Kahneman. Well, no, not Kahneman. The book was by... Jordan um, uh, Ariely? Yeah, no, well, he's also in, in the whole thing, but, but the main one was, the main reason that got, they took, took off was Richard Thaler's book. But basically Correct. the idea is structuring the choice architecture. That's, that's what he would call it. Basically, or changing the framing of things or changing the way that the choices we make look. That, that's one aspect of it. Changing the way the choices we make look, even if it's actually the exact same choices. So. You know, senior citizens discount or young persons overcharges. How do you, how do you want to put it? Um, or an- another way of doing it was uh, defaults was a big, default choice was a big thing. So forcing people automatically signing them up for a retirement savings account and they have to opt out of it versus opt into it. Uh, so in the context of charity, it could be things like automatically, uh, it very often is having people automatically subscribe to give the same amount every year and they have to opt out of giving the same amount every year. Um, but I mean, in general, it's the idea of using psychology and behavioral economics to, to make people make different choices without changing the meaningful actual incentives. So you prefer the phraseology of choice architecture over nudge? Well, now that I'm saying it, it's, it's a bunch of different things. I would say insights from behavioral economics. So, okay, maybe that's a bit of, maybe that's a bit of a mouthful. Go with, go with nudge theory if it makes you happy. Uh, do, you, do you think there's an interesting interplay between the more data science techniques and these kind of behavioral methods? Yeah. I, I mean, it's not something that, that we're, you know, we're, we're currently doing in the charity sector very well in my part of the charity sector anyway it's not something that we're doing but i think there is something there and i think you know it's a great opportunity to to use these techniques to to really hone where we use our marketing and to make our marketing more effective um and you know i see it a lot in the commercial world i worked for a holiday company that was using similar techniques um and i think there is a place to play albeit i think charities aren't necessarily quite there or necessarily quite comfortable with that, but I think that's something that we need to teach them as as data experts and data people. I think there's a part about educating the charity sector about you know how some of these things could be really useful. I mean, just thinking about about different tools we can use and 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 different problems we have in the charity sector. Uh, thinking for your work at uh, thinking about your work, well, either either at um, at Save the Children or um, or in education, a primary leap. What do you think is the biggest unsolved mystery that you think a good data scientist or consulting firm could, you know, maybe help help bring some answers to? What is this unmeasurable? What are the most important unmeasurable quantity or unmeasured quantity? I think, you know, from a charity perspective, 
I think TV is, 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 is one of the biggest problems. You know, it's not a cheap marketing method, right? Let's face it. TV, TV advertisements. It's yeah. not going to be cheap. Um, being able to actually measure it and understand and show the charity its effectiveness, uh, I think can be quite problematic for, for charities. And I think that's the thing that well, we need to be able to solve, right? What do you observe uh, about, about TV advertisements? I mean, obviously, you know how much you've spent on the TV ads. Uh, I guess they go out to a, you know what channels they're on. And you're not talking about YouTube now, right? Because YouTube, there's probably other solutions. So standard terrestrial or whatever it is, not, not terrestrial anymore, TV. Uh, what outcome data do you get that could potentially connect a donation or a new subscriber to, to the television ads? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, you know, a lot of charities will have, you know, a little tip box that says, did you see us on TV? Um, and so, so, you know, that, that that's a standard thing. But you're, you're leaving that up to the end user to have to make that choice. Uh, and realistically, it's another checkbox that somebody has to tick. So do they really want to do that? Then you kind of got like time series analysis. So you've got, you know, we know when an advert mm-hmm, was mm-hmm. and we look at in that span of time, right. what can we potentially attribute? Um, right. But for I think... Controlling for trends and seasonal effects and, and year-to-year holiday type effects. Okay, that sounds that sounds pretty promising. I mean, especially if you, if you stagger your ads... In particular time, I mean, if you have markets too, but if you stagger your ads particular times, not always the same day of the year. Well, why is that not sufficient? Why does that not really tell you much? Is it because people don't respond immediately? Is that the problem? Well, you're going to have the fact that some people aren't going to respond immediately. Um, there's also a lot of other, could be a lot of other factors driving traffic to the website uh, and making donations. So you've got to remember most of these adverts are going to be driving people to a digital space to make a donation. They're going to be the main website. So they're not necessarily, you know, sending them to vanity URLs. A lot of charities mm-hmm. don't do that. Um, and I think it's about what the overall impact is. Um, you know, I've worked with charities, we've turned tv off and we've seen the impact of what that has above and beyond the financial or the action based um and it's quite surprising like how it affects so many other components of of our digital Mm. infrastructure i can imagine the attribution can be difficult when people coming to save i mean first of all save the children people know have heard of save the children it's probably got pretty high brand recognition right now but also the decision to take an action like donate or sign up for a subscription or, or you know, etc., that could probably be influenced by many channels at the same time. But still, I think having the leisure, the the lever to turn things on or turn things off in certain markets, that might be your key way to identify things. I mean, I guess for you, it's mostly focused on the UK mo- market as a homogenous thing that you can only switch all the lights on or all the lights off. Or do you have other ways to segment the markets and, and do tests on that? Yeah, so at, at a global level, obviously, like I said to you before, mm-hmm. you know, say mm-hmm. the children is a, is a global charity with many facets in yeah. different countries. Um, so, yeah, you're right in terms of, yeah, we could turn them a market off and see see it from that that perspective. So, you know, turn that lever, pull, push that lever on. Um, but specifically when we're looking in market, so Save the Children UK, looking at our mm-hmm. UK audience, it is pretty much an on and off switch. Are the lights on or are the lights off in terms of that, mm. that advertising? Um, we have done that. 
don't get me wrong, we have turned the lights off to see the impacts. And it's, I don't think people, you know, necessarily a lot of charities really understand how impactful that might be on their other digital channels. And it is quite surprising. So you think that it's under, it tends to be underestimated. You think people are absolutely under, underselling the importance of television. Very interesting. Very interesting. All right. Well, I think we're coming towards the end of the show now. Um, anything you'd like to know about, uh, tell us about future trends that you see specifically in uh, your sector? Um, any interesting use of data that perhaps, you know, you have more of the heart of the, the beat of the heart uh, at? So, yeah, actually, I have got a couple of things, Henrik, actually. Um, like, you know, like I said to you both before, the sector as a whole is generally a little bit behind the curve. But, you know, increasingly I'm seeing charities become more data focused. I'm seeing them at more of the conferences that the likes of you and I would attend, more of those types of events. And it's really good uh, and inspiring to see that they realize mm. the importance of what they have. Um, and it can only get better from, from, from here for all of us, right? That's great. All right. So now it we time? have, now it is time for Hooray. the Oracle. So the Oracle is basically a personality question that just tells us a little bit about you. If there was any one thing that you would like to know about what life on Earth would be like a hundred years from now, what would you like to know? If there was anything I would like to know, it's a really good question. Um, I don't know. Uh, have we managed to colonize space? How would you measure that? What would be your metric of that? I want a zero. I want to be able to make bets on it. <laughs> this is this is stuff people at Metaculus are doing all the time. What if a hundred years I, from now have we colonized space? What decides the Ladbrokes, you know, bet? Okay, so it's got to got to be outside of our solar system. Oh wow! So beyond Mars, beyond Mars, um, have have we managed to get anywhere further than than that? Have we managed to peak elsewhere into the Milky Way? All right. Well, we'll come back in a hundred years and uh, and see yes. how that one turned out. Right? Or episode two million seventy three. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and finally, uh, we have the correlation game. Uh, the correlation game. game is a game where you just have to guess uh, any number between negative one and plus one, and obviously, if we think that these two two variables are highly positively correlated, we would guess something close to one. If we think that these two things kind of go against each other, one number increases as the other one decreases, then we would guess uh, something very close to negative one. And if we think these two variables are completely uncorrelated to each other, then we would guess something close to zero. Um, so today's uh, correlation uh, comes to us from uh, the World Happiness Report, actually. And terrific. Uh, it's, By the way, we know you know what a correlation was. We're explaining that for the listeners. Yes, so yes. You know what a Spearman correlation is. You know, a, so Pearson, a Spearman correlation in ranks. So we don't mean to be talking down to you. No, it is uh, for the benefit of our audience so that they know what the game is about. Um, so the correlation we're trying to guess here is uh, generosity in a country versus perceptions of corruption. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea. 
Um, Peter, really good one there. Um, I'm going to say it's uncorrelated. So give us a number. Negative, something close to zero, negative, positive. Something close to zero. I'm going to say something close to zero. What's your reasoning for that? Why would you think it's not correlated? I think, I'm not sure if generosity and corruption go hand in hand. I don't know. I'm not sure. It's just a really odd one. I really am flummoxed. I don't know. Um, You're like, one of my colleagues comes up with these things all the time. She'll come into the, into meetings and she'll be like, is there a correlation between these two things? She should come on our show. (laughs) She, she often really gets us with like, things that we would never imagine to be correlated. Oh, intrigued. What's the answer? Well, uh, just do give us a number because we actually have like a, a leaderboard, and so we want to be able to place you accurately on this. Oh, zero point four. Okay. Oh, point four, which would be a. You mean that would be a pretty strong, moderately strong positive correlation? So more generous, more corrupt, or you more me, perceiving corruption. Got me second guessing myself. You see. Okay. Final answer? Final answer, final answer. All right. Drum roll, please, then. And there is actually a slight negative correlation. Uh, It's not very strong. Um, It is just a measly negative uh, 0.29. There's actually some work discussing discussing at the individual level, if I recall correctly, about, like, people who are less trust trustworthy or tr- less trusting outside their families are, are less likely to be, well, that's kind of obvious, less likely to be generous outside. I'm just vaguely remembering some, but I think the thrust of the, if, if we believe that there's a causal story, direct causal story here, I think the thrust would be people think the world is corrupt. Therefore they don't want to give away their money because they think it's going to be misused, you know, used, used, but you could, you can also think about like, I'm I'm a stingy tightwad, so therefore I'm going to claim the world is corrupt. Anyways, you could you could go in either <laughs> direction there. I think. <laughs> All right. Well, it's been absolutely lovely having you on our show. And uh, oh, I'm supposed to mention. Sorry, James mentioned your 0.69 correlation points out, which places you in the silver slot on our leaderboard. So it's respectable. Cool, cool, cool. That makes me feel better. I mean, right. you guys got me second-guessing myself. I mean... It's a tough one. You were, you would, If you went with your initial intuition of near zero, I think you would have, you would have edged the other guy, I think. Let's hope I, 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 I can stay fairly close in place. Well, th- right. thank you very Fair much, enough. guys. It's been amazing. It's great to chat to both of you. Uh, what amazing hosts. So thank you very much. Thanks for coming on. So that was Darren. What do you think we learned today, David? I um something I'm this is definitely something I'm very interested in, which is fundraising and different uh, type ways of doing marketing and testing marketing to charitable organizations. Um, I learned I hadn't realized that TV is seen as such a difficult nut to crack. Television, t- traditional television. Um, I learned a bit about how they do segmentation of different groups. I wouldn't have thought of the time poor, time rich uh, distinction that he mentioned. Um, it sounds like I learned a bit about the, the sort of ways that they're doing messaging and testing. It sounds like it's a, well, he, he didn't go into a lot of detail about the complexities of it. I think it's, they're mostly doing simple versions of these things. Um, one thing that I, that I also thought was interesting 
was uh, I did ask him about the potential for for organizations like Save the Children to cooperate and share data and learning with organizations like perhaps Oxfam or UNICEF or uh, Malaria Foundation, uh, Malaria Consortium. And it sounded like he was positive about that. And you even mentioned that there is there are some channels that they share. Um, I mean, what do you think? What, what did you take away from the discussion? I guess what was most surprising to me was just the fact that the charity sector and the private sector seem to actually be more similar than I imagined in terms of the techniques that they're trying to employ. Um, they use CRM systems in very much the same mm-hmm. way. They're thinking about the journeys of their supporters. They're thinking about messaging yeah. or you know mm-hmm. different supporter segments. Um, and it was interesting maybe how the he only said that thing that was tiny bit different was okay uh, can we justify hiring a data scientist um and to your point earlier i think you said you know you don't want to have too much overhead in charities because that's often seen as a bad thing yeah and and maybe data scientists are thought of as you know a bit of overhead it's 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 funny but i mean the one major difference is that the interworkings inner workings of the business itself seem to be something the, quote, consumers, read, donors care about in charity. So for a business, I will hire a data consultant if, all right, let's say a data consultant costs me 100,000 pounds, uh, just throwing some numbers out there, and they earn me 101,000 pounds, that's a net gain of 1,000 pounds. Probably worth doing. In the context of a charity, it's, it's one, not clear whether that is a good outcome, because if they got me 101,000 additional pounds in donations, well, maybe... A lot of those came at the cost of other causes that would have got the money. So that's the, the justification. But also, it increases my perceived overhead or fundraising expenditure, which donors, potential donors, and these advocacy or these ratings agencies look at. So it's a slightly different uh, calculation there. Indeed. All right. Well, that's it for today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to get in touch, message us at hello at profusion.com or tweet us at PRFSN. See you next time. Bye-bye.